Folks, I want to welcome you all to On the Edge with K.A. Owens. I'm K.A. Owens, and we are broadcasting from the top of the Haber Building in Louisville, Kentucky. This is Forward Radio, WFMP-LP Louisville, 106.5 FM. And if you want to find out a little bit more about our station, uh, you can go to forwardradio.org uh, and find out um, about our station, about our programming. And also, we're um, streaming now, so go to that website, click on a button, you can listen to us anywhere in the city, anywhere in the state, anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. Well, folks, again, this is uh, On the Edge with K.A. Owens, and I'm K.A. Owens, and we're going to talk about a variety of things today. Um, one, we do want to mention that, uh, of course, Bell Hooks died, uh, the author, uh, who happened to be an African-American female, died December the 15th, 2021. That was a Wednesday. Just to tell you a little bit about her, uh, I'm going to share an article written by Hillel Itali of the Associated Press that was printed in the Courier Journal. Bell Hooks, the groundbreaking author, educator, and activist whose explorations of how race, gender, economics, and politics intertwine helped shape academic and popular debates over the past 40 years, has died. She was 69. In a statement issued... Through William Morrow Publishers, Hook's family announced that she died Wednesday in Berea, Kentucky, home to the Bell Hook Center at Berea College. Additional details were not immediately available, although her close friend, Dr. Linda Strong-Leak, said she had been ill for a long time. She was a giant no-nonsense person who lived by her own rules and spoke her own truth in a time when black people, and especially women, did not feel empowered to do that. Dr. Strong Leak, a former provost of Berea College, wrote in an email to the Associated Press, It was a privilege to know her, and the world is a lesser place today because she is gone. There will never be another Bell Hooks. Starting in the 1970s, Hooks was a profound presence in the classroom and on the page. She drew upon professional scholarship and personal history as she completed dozens of books that influenced countless peers and helped provide a framework for current debates about race, class, and feminism. Her notable works included Ain't I a Woman, Black Women and Feminism, Feminist Theory from Margin to Center, and All About Love, New Visions. She also wrote poetry and children's stories and appeared in such documentaries as Black Is, Black Ain't, and Hillbilly. Rejecting the isolation of feminism, civil rights, and economics into separate fields, she was a believer in community and connectivity and how racism, sexism, and economic disparity reinforced each other. Among her most famous expressions was her definition of feminism, which she called a movement to end sexism, sexist exploitation, and oppression. 
Ebram X. Kendi, Roxanne Gay, Tressy McMillan Cottom, and others mourned Hooks. Author Saeed Jones noted that her death came just after the week after the loss of celebrated black author and critic Greg Tate. It all feels so pointed, he tweeted. Hook's honors included an American Book Award from Before Columbus Foundation, which champions diversity in literature. She taught at numerous schools, including Yale University, Oberlin College, and City College of New York. She joined the Berea College faculty in 2004, and a decade later founded the center named for her, where many and varied expressions of difference can thrive. One former student at Yale, the author Min J. Lee, would write in the New York Times in, 19, in 2019 that in Hook's classroom, everything felt so intense and crackling like the w- way the air can feel heavy before a long arrated rain. Hooks was born Gloria Jean Watkins in 1952 in the segregated town of Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and later gave herself the pen name Bell Hooks in honor of her maternal great-grandmother, while also spelling the words in lowercase to establish her own identity and way of thinking. She loved reading from an early age, remembering how books gave her visions of new worlds that forced her out of her comfort zone. So, folks, I'm uh, talking just a little bit about Bell Hooks, who died uh, Wednesday, December the 15th at age 69. One of the interesting things about, to me, <clears throat> about Bell Hooks, oh, by the, by the way, that we were reading from an, an, an article written by Hillel Itali from uh, AP that had been printed in the Courier Journal. And so, uh, one of the things that's interesting about Bell Hooks for me was that here's a person that can live anywhere in the country. She had fought her way, earned her way to elite literary circles, uh, and she could, of course, lived in Manhattan or L.A. or London, Paris, Rome, anywhere. Yet she chose to come back to Kentucky. So that's what's uh, uh, interesting to me. I mean, uh, she was born in Hopkinsville and died in Berea, Kentucky. So that's fascinating. And, of course, uh, when you think about that, you think of uh, who else? Uh, Well... Uh, his name slips me, but uh, let me go on to. Uh, uh, oh well, just uh, two different women: uh, Elizabeth Hardwick, of course, uh, from uh, died several years ago, more than several, but uh, a white woman from uh, Lexington got a master's degree at UK, then went to New York and sort of never looked back, established herself in New York literary circles. Uh, 
uh, became part of the New York intelligentsia. And then, of course, the great Ann Braden, who uh, uh, was born in Louisville, raised in Alabama, and then came to Louisville to make her life here, became a noted anti-racist. But uh, Ann Braden, of course, was actually a a, a debutante, really came from a family that was never poor during the Depression. So college educated as well. I mean, she had her career, uh, established established herself as a uh, career in journalism, uh, first in Alabama, then uh, working for the Bingham Empire here in Kentucky. Uh, you know, they had the Courier Journal and Times, a family on both papers. So she could have gone on to any heights, but she, uh, of course, married Carl and decided that her life was going to be the movement. And she, you know, was well known, uh, you know, in civil rights and activist circles all across the country. And, of course, uh, you know, traveled across the country to, you know, uh, uh, be a part of things that uh, uh, were important, but she based her life here and raised life life here. So it's just interesting what people do with their their fame, uh, their success, their ability to achieve. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, Robert Reich. Uh, of course, Robert Reich was Secretary of Labor uh, during the Clinton administration. Uh, and uh, uh, this is what he writes. Uh, he wrote this, or at least it was released on uh, Thursday, December 23rd. Uh, he wrote it to, to, to move on. Right? He says, I'm frustrated by Joe Manchin. On a per-person basis... No one needs the Build Back Better bill more than the West Virginians he represents. One in five of West Virginia's children live in poverty, and nearly one in five seniors is food insecure. Don't listen to the cable TV talking heads who say that the bill is just too left-wing for a red state like West Virginia. West Virginia voters support the Build Back Better bill by a margin of 43 points. And no one should believe Manchin's lines, uh, line about deficits or inflation either. He didn't have any problems voting for a military budget that was $25 billion over what President Joe Biden had asked for and four times larger on a per-year basis than the Build Back Better bill. The sad truth is that Manchin sold out the people of West Virginia to massive corporations, the ultra-wealthy, and GOP and corporate media talking points, and marginalized communities in West Virginia and nationwide are going to be hurt the most. No one senator should be able to deny hundreds of millions of Americans the economic relief that the Build Back Better bill will bring. Senator Manchin's comments on Fox News Sunday that he will not support the bill cannot and will not be the final word. Senate Democratic leaders have announced that they still plan to bring a bill to the floor of the Senate in January 
And President Biden said that he won't give up till the job is done. Looking at the numbers, West Virginians would be among the biggest beneficiaries of this legislation. For instance, the extension of the child tax credit would immediately lift 22,000 West Virginia kids out of poverty. The expansion of the earned income tax would benefit 102,900 low-wage West Virginia workers. Nearly two-thirds of West Virginians live in child care deserts. The Build Back Better bill would have filled those needs with historic investments in child care and expand free preschool to three-year-olds. One in four West Virginia seniors don't have natural teeth, the highest rate in the nation. President Biden's original bill provided dental benefits under Medicare. Build Back Better's housing choice vouchers would provide rental assistance to families on the brink of homelessness and benefit 8,000 West Virginians, nearly half of their children. West Virginia has no paid leave protections at all for new parents or people with serious illness. The bill would guarantee paid leave for 690,000 workers. This bill would support workers abandoned by the dying coal industry with programs like the Civilian Climate Corps, which would put residents of coal-scarred rural communities to work in land restoration. So why would Manchin say no to all of this? Just follow the money. Uh, This is what Robert Reich writes. He owns stock valued at between, I'm talking about, this is what Manchin, this is what uh, Manchin owns, uh, according to uh, Robert Reich. Manchin owns stock value between $1 million and $5 million in a coal company he founded in 1988. He receives more contributions from coal, oil, and gas industries than any other senator. While Manchin rakes in the big money, he made his disdain for working people clear when he said privately that he opposed child tax credits because he believed parents would spend the money on drugs and that he opposed paid sick leave because he believed workers would fake being sick so they can go on hunting trips. It's outrageous. So that's what uh, Robert Reich, uh, former Secretary of Labor under Clinton, write, uh, writes about uh, United States Senator Joe Manchin from the great state of West Virginia. Now, uh, now this is uh, what we've got next is just very interesting uh uh, Robert Reich also writes for uh, something called Substack, which is Michael Moore writes for that too. So uh, uh, Michael Moore took this from uh, Reich's Substack and put it in his Substack. And so uh, 
This is from Robert Reich, former Secretary of Labor uh, under Bill Clinton. You want to know the truth about inflation? It's not what the Fed thinks it is. Prices are rising because corporations have the power to raise them. They're using inflation as an excuse. The Fed is about to apply the wrong medicine. Now, Robert Reich writes this. It was released on December the 16th, 2021 on robertreich.substack.com. Robert Reich writes, Yesterday, the Fed's policy committee announced it would both end its bond-buying program and likely raise interest rates sooner than had been expected. Inflation is more persistent and higher and that the risk of it remaining higher for longer has grown. Fred Chair Jerome, that's Jerome Powell, explained. Translated, Powell and the Fed are about to slow the economy, even though we're still at least 4 million jobs short of where we were before the pandemic. So let's go back to the first paragraph. The Fed's policy committee announced it would both end its bond-buying program and likely raise interest rates sooner than had been expected. And so Fed Chair Jerome Powell thinks that this is going to lower inflation. So uh, uh, so according to Robert Reich, Powell and the Fed are about to slow the economy, even though we're still 4 million jobs short. Now, according to Robert Reich, he says, as a result, millions of American workers won't get the raises they deserve. I think that's a big mistake. This is what Robert Reich says. Powell's medicine has nothing to do with the real reason for inflation. The increasing concentration of the American economy into the hands of a relative few corporate giants with the power to raise prices. If markets were competitive, companies would keep their prices down in order to prevent competitors from grabbing away customers. But they're raising prices even as they rake in record profits. How can this be? The answer is they have so much market power they can raise prices with impunity. The underlying problem is not inflation. It's lack of competition. Corporations are using the excuse of inflation to raise prices and make fatter profits. Now, folks, we're reading from Robert Reich uh, in his uh, substack of December the 16th, 2021. That's com. In April, Procter & Gamble announced it would start charging more for consumer staples 
ranging from diapers to toilet paper, citing rising costs for raw materials such as resin and pulp and higher expenses to transport goods. That was rubbish. P&G continues to rake in huge profits. In the quarter ending September 30th, after its price increases went into effect, it reported a whopping 24.7% profit margin. It even spent $3 billion during the quarter buying back its own stock. It even spent $3 billion during the quarter buying back its own stock. The reason it could raise prices and rake in more money is P&G faces almost no competition. The lion's share of the market for diapers, to take one example, is controlled by just two companies, P&G and Kimberly-Clark, which coordinate their prices and production. It was hardly a coincidence that Kimberly-Clark announced price increases similar to P&G's. At the same time, P&G announced its own price increases. Or consider another consumer product duopoly. PepsiCo, the parent company of Frito-Lay, Gatorade, Quaker, Tropicana, and other brands, and Coca-Cola. In April, PepsiCo announced it was increasing prices, blaming higher costs for some ingredients, freight, and labor. That was pure baloney. The company didn't have to raise prices. It recorded $3 billion in operating profits through September. If PepsiCo faced tough competition, it could never have gotten away with it. Consumers would have deserted it for lower-priced competitors. But PepsiCo clearly colluded with its only major competitor, Coca-Cola, which announced similar price increases at about the same time as PepsiCo and has increased its profit margins to 28.9%. Half of the recent rise in grocery prices is from meat products beef, pork, and poultry. Just four large conglomerates control most meat processing. They're raising their prices and coordinating their price increases, even as they're scoring record profits. Here again, they're using inflation as an excuse. You see the same pattern all over the American economy. Since the 1980s, two-thirds of all American industries have become more concentrated. Monsanto now sets the prices for most of the nation's seed corn. Wall Street has consolidated into five giant banks.
airlines have merged from 12 carriers in 1980 to four today, which now control 80% of domestic seating capacity. The merger of Boeing and McDonnell Douglas has left the U.S. with just one large producer of civilian aircraft, Boeing. Three giant cable companies dominate broadband, Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon. A handful of drug companies control the pharmaceutical industry. Pfizer, Eli Lilly, Johnson & Johnson, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Merck. All of this concentration gives corporations the power to raise prices because it makes it easy for them to coordinate price increases with a handful of other companies in the same industry without risking the possibility of losing customers who have no other choice. In some, inflation isn't driving these price increases. Corporate power is driving them. So what's the appropriate government response? Not slowing down the economy. This will only hurt millions of workers who are just beginning to get the raises they deserve. The problem at the heart of the economy is amenable to only one thing. The aggressive use of antitrust laws to bust up monopolies. This will take time, perhaps years. In the meantime, Biden and the Democrats could do something with a more immediate immediate effect. Enact a windfall profits tax applicable to any large corporation that raises its prices during the same quarter as profits have risen. So now this is from Robert Reich, former Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration. So again, just the takeaways are, Prices are rising because corporations have the power to raise them. They're using inflation as an excuse. So, according to him, the appropriate government response is not slowing down the economy. He says that will just hurt workers who are just starting to get raises. That You know, they're 30 years overdue, as a matter of fact. He says the only thing that would work is the aggressive use of antitrust laws to bust up monopolies. So, in in the immediate, he says Biden and the Democrats should, could, enact a windfall profits tax applicable to any large corporation that raises its prices during the same quarter its profits have risen.
So, folks, I, I think, uh, you know, those are some valuable takeaways, that, that, and uh, that's completely different than what you've been hearing on the news um, uh, in regards to inflation. So, folks, uh, you've been listening to uh, On the Edge with K.A. Owens. Uh, I'm K.A. Owens, and I guess this qualifies as our, uh, uh, you know, holiday show, or at least our last show before Christmas. Uh, although, of course, some of you folks will hear it uh, after Christmas. So to all your family and friends, uh, you know, be good. I hope Santa Claus is good to you. And we will be back next week week with On the Edge with K.A. Owens. 106.5 FM on your radio dial.